0: Okay, so Parashas Bo, we're now in the central episode where, well, central, lots of as lots of parts of the Torah are central, but this is where we become a nation. This is it, the Yedzias the coming out of Egypt, at least part one of it. Um, since the last three plagues, the last three Makos, right, the, the um, Arba, the Locust Plague, the Choshach, the darkness, and the Makos becharis, the destruction of every firstborn, which forces the Pharaoh forces Pharaoh to actually free us because he himself is a firstborn uh, and, and that's it. And, but then also in the sadra, as they go free, or we actually stay at home that night and when we're supposed to go free and the, the Jewish people go and ask all their neighbors for you know we've been slaves for hundreds of years, can we have some pay for it? And then there's a lot of discussion about the carbon pesach, the pesach offering, which they have to do that night in Egypt before they become free, before the last of the plagues. They what happens is they're told to take the carbon pesach, which was an Egyptian god. The sheep, uh, those who are familiar will know that um, the Egyptians at the time had many gods, but Ra, the sun god, is right at the top of them. And like Pharaoh, actually, Parish says to Moses, if you go, see that Ra is, is, is in front of you. Ra was the sun god. Now, little does he know when, you, when that same thing's translated into Hebrew, it means evil is against you. So their name for their god was evil. And that's actually not a coincidence because the whole point is that Egypt, Mitzrayim, had taken all the natural power of the world. They had it all. They were a tremendously powerful civilization. They were able to build, I mean, were centuries before the whole story of Egypt, they were able to build pyramids and sphinxes. They were able to manipulate the Nile and build a canal system. They were able to use every part of the natural world for fertility and productivity and everything, wealth, trade, the whole lot. And they saw the apex, the pharaoh, as a divine force. And they linked power to the divine. And when a human makes a god out of power and power becomes the gods and so on, then the natural world becomes divine. And then oppression and the one who's naturally strong is meant to be on top of the one who's weak. And all the evil that can come through that comes through that. And that's what Egypt was. And at the apex of their three different forms of ra was a thing called Ra. This is not in the Torah, but this is now we know archaeologically and historically. And that had the form of a sheep that protected the pharaoh. So when they take this, the sheep, because I guess it's the natural, I guess they felt spiritual things are manifest in the natural world and all the sheep that are working and the flocks that give you, you know, that they could do all, that they represent the natural world, the natural order, the, the, the world of the animal that can be tamed and farmed, they give you wool or give you food or give you whatever exactly it would be. Probably not food, so they probably didn't eat the sheep, but whatever else, the wool, let's say, and, and that divine force that gave them this power and this clothing and all this stuff, they linked it all, and they saw that as, as somehow the sheep represents, I guess the ability of man to control nature, right, represents, is represented in the highest spiritual forces, and when we take that and, and eat it's like, oh, it's a disruptor to the whole system, it's saying we are not going to be part of this system. But there's a lot of elaboration about it, and as we're told even in Egypt to eat from it, we're already told... How we're going to explain it to our children? It becomes on our, our nightly Seder night, and they're going to ask you these questions. And, and on Seder night, we famously read about the four children who ask questions. Three of them are already discussed here. So before we're leaving Egypt, and as we're leaving Egypt, we're already told, by the way, this is something you're going to have to relive in future generations. This night is something you're going to have to talk about to future generations. This night should stimulate and provoke, when we relive it, questions, and here's how you're going to answer them. And those answers are the core of all education. So it's not just we're coming free of Egypt. Something is happening here that is going to define our fundamental educational message to every generation ever after. And it ends with certain mitzvahs, particularly the idea of to fill in of wearing signs on us, eyes, hands, opposite our heart, between our eyes, all that we think about, all that we see, all opposite our heart, all that we feel in our emotions and down into our hands, all that we do in the world should be aligned with a vision that at this stage in the Torah is the message of coming out of Egypt. Somehow it has a message that is meant to permeate everything we do. Later we will add other more specific things like the shaman and and Ba'afton, et cetera. Okay, but that then means that we need to understand that what's happening here is not just we were in trouble as, as slaves, Hashem saved us. It's not even just that we're grateful to Hashem for saving us, as we'll see that actually, you might think that is the message, but there's a good reason to believe it's not the message. And the good reason is it actually wouldn't even work as a message because Hashem, thank you for saving us and we've got to tell ourselves, future generations, how grateful we are to God and therefore we become His servants and we've got to live according to Him. That doesn't work. I mean, that may be true, but it's certainly nowhere near enough. Why? First of all, because there's an obvious question. It's all very nice Hashem took us out of Egypt. But who got us in there in the first place? Hashem. Now, you may say, no, 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 no. Doesn't the Rambam say that since, you know, we kicked God out of the world, if you like, so to speak, in the Garden of Eden, we sinned. And so God kind of lets things run according to the chaos of the natural world. And, and maybe he doesn't intervene so much and he zaps in and, and changes things. So yes, we got ourselves in, in trouble naturally and Hashem came and saved us. Well, forget whether that is the way to another Rambam or not. Even if you want to think of that, things that way, it's very, very clear that's not what's going on in Egypt. Because we say, as we're coming out of Egypt, we say the following, we say that this is a leil shimurim, it's a night that's been guarded. How's it been? does it mean it's been guarded? In fact, we say more than that. We say that, so let me just catch the, the, exact, the exact verse here. Um, here we go. Well, Moshe Rabbeinu we always says exactly was uh, four hundred and thirty years. Parakid base, chapter twelve, pasuk memana forty one. It was at the end of four hundred and thirty years. The essence of this day, Rashi brings exactly the end of four hundred and thirty years since the Bris ben Ab the covenant that Hashem made with Avram. Now, if we turn back to that covenant and we look at what happened over there. So there, Hashem in Parashalachlachah says to Avram, he first of all tells him he's going to have children. He believes in Hashem, trusts Hashem, is faithful perhaps to what Hashem's saying, commits to that. And it was considered a righteous thing. Then Hashem says, that I'm going to give you this land, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel. Says Hashem alakim, Hashem got, how do I know I'll inherit it? What a strange question. The infinite creator of the universe comes and appears to you and says, I'm going to tell you the future. This is what's going to happen. I'm outside of space and time. I control the world, right? You ask, well, how do I know? What do you mean? What a crazy question. How do I know? Right? So Rashi says, Maybe they could sin. Meaning, as the Maharal elaborates, meaning... You're telling me that right now, it's now become determined inside space and time that there's no way we can fail to end up with the land of Israel. But isn't the land of Israel's whole point that it is the land of the future of humanity and it is the land that you have to earn and the land that depends on the Yosha, yashem, the one who's straight in the eyes of God. And therefore, you can't get the land of Israel if unless you use free will unless you can make choices, unless you can choose to let God's light in where it wasn't there. But to do that means you have to have the option, the genuine option of failure. And so, Hashem, you're telling me we're going to succeed where we have a genuine option of failing and that's predetermined now. Well, then that means we don't have an option of failing. So there's no meaning to succeeding. So there's no bringing a light in. The only way you can stop us from failing is if you yourself shine the light through us so that we can't mess up. So when well, in that case, we don't bring any light into the world. In that case, what's it mean that we inherit this? It? It's a meaningless, it's not got any value. It's only valuable to me if we mean by this that you're going to shine God's light into through our free will into the world where it didn't yet exist. That's what it means to inherit this land. That's the meaning, the value, that's why it's worthwhile inheriting in this land. But that's a contradiction. The whole point is it's not guaranteed. The whole point is it's up to us. So I don't get it. How how, how can I know? How can I even make sense of this? If it will be something, if in us let's get this clear. The whole, the only meaning of living and getting the land of Israel as a reward or as anything valuable at all is it's the land where God's light will shine through the choice of the human being which will in the end shine to the whole world. But the choice where literally it wasn't there because it was your choice. Because you had, because you could say yes or you could say no, then you shine the light. Well, maybe, if you're going to say that we've got choice, then maybe we'll fail. And if you're going to say we can't fail, then we don't have choice, then we don't achieve anything. And what's the point of, then this isn't the land. It might be the physical, geographical land that you put us in. But that's not called inheriting the land of Israel. That's not called inheriting the future. And to that he answers, Hashem answers. says, okay, take me these things. He creates this vision of her. He falls into sleep. He's got the animals around him, which represent offerings. and he represent the exiles the Jewish people go through. And then he says, da. you will surely know because your children will be strangers in a land that is not theirs they're going to be enslaved they're going to be afflicted this whole thing will be a 400 year ordeal from when your child's born right, as Rashi explains till when you come out of Egypt and so on and then they'll also judge that people who enslave them and then they'll come out with great wealth and, and they'll come out with Reward, which will eventually become the temple and eventually become all, all these things. How does that answer the question? And the Maharal explains, it answers the question like this. What he's saying to Avram is, you are right. Individually, there will be free will. People can do well, people cannot do well. But the Jewish people are also going to be a collective. And the collective's core is going to be so attached to me, says Hashem, based on the work you've already done, Avram, which you're not yet aware of, and that work it will guarantee that even if individually many, many, many of them fail, the core will always succeed. So let's understand this. How does going into Egypt, coming out of Egypt, what does that do? How does it do it? And the answer is Parashas Bo. You see, Bo is an anomalous or strange. I mean, the word itself, right? We know that sedras are not just named randomly. Right? The Torah was not just divided by, by Andrzej HaKadol, and by Hazal, by the rabbis of antiquity, it wasn't just divided randomly. It was divided along natural fault lines. And the nature's fault lines are, they always, like every section or subsection or subsection of Torah, the beginning contains the whole thing is coming. So when they felt these lines, they always felt that the opening possible, the key words in it will usually be the message of everything is coming after it for this section of the Torah. they even smaller way you can read, divide into less and less and less there's another time we can discuss how significant titles are. Just go on say. Yeah, so the word "bo" means to come. And Hashem tells Meishaboyal Parah come to Parah. Now that's strange. Normally the instruction will be leich. Go to Pharaoh. If I'm standing here with you and I'm telling you to go somewhere, I say lech. Hashem usually says lech, go lech lecha, go for yourself on this journey. Right? He tells everyone twice, says lech to go. Usually we say lech to go somewhere. When do you say bo come? When you're standing on the other side. What's a, but here you're standing with Moshe, you're telling him to go. It seems to be the wrong word, and it's used more than once in, you know, in, in, in this uh, in this context of going to para to get the Jewish people free. And in fact, this idea. We see other things in the sedra that also seem to be in the wrong direction, right? The very fact that in Egypt on the night they were coming out, they were told to have the, the lamb representing all the divine forces of, of oppression and power. And, fine, that makes sense. But our matzahs and moro, you have to eat it on matzah and mora. Now, mora are the bitter stuff that we do to this day to remember the bitterness of the slavery in Egypt. But why do you have matzah? Well, we read about it this week because the next morning, it seems they didn't know exactly when they're going to go. Suddenly, boom, they need to go. They run. They hadn't prepared any provisions. They took whatever dough they could, put it on the shoulder. The sun comes and bakes it. It ends up being matza, It doesn't stay long enough to get properly uh, blown up into a normal bread, leavened product. And that's matza. And to remember that we left in that momentary hurry, we have matzo. Okay, that's why we have matzah. Now, thousands of years later, why did they have matzah? An to because the next morning they were going to go out in a hurry, but they didn't know yet. Why? What's going on? So we seem to see there's the things in the wrong place come instead of go. Eat the matzah now, but it's really only going to become revealed later on, and so on. And to understand all of this, it's worth contemplating this journey into Egypt as part of the answer to Avram. You're, they're going to go into Egypt. They're going to come out the other side. How does that answer your question that we're going to guarantee to work our way through history, at least collectively? So here again, I'm elaborating slightly. This is basically what the Maharal is telling us in the verse Hashem. That Avram achieves a tremendous level of connection to Hashem tremendous level of it being a conduit and channel for God's revelation in the world of by Abraham and Sarah. And they have it, but their children don't generally get the message. Only one out of the nine children that we read about in the Torah fully commits all their life. Yitzhak to, to commits his life that way. His generation, Yitzhak, then have a Yaakov, a Yaakov and Asav. What? Only one of them follows. That's already 50% because there's only two children then. But it's only with the third generation, with Yaakov, that it becomes... If you like the equivalent of spiritual, like something like a spiritual gene, something that gets passed on now to future generations, and now the name Israel, Israel enters the world, and lands on that personality and his family on us, and that <coughs> now what that means is all the children follow the pathway. They are problems in the family. The sale of Yosef there's issues, but they're all committed to the pathway because. This thing has now become hereditary to some degree. And that seed, that gene is planted in Mitzrayim, planted in Egypt. We saw the generation of the names, that's, it's now planted, they're gone. It now becomes this collective, for a while collective, and then it'll become names again. And it all goes through one little channel. B'nei shor, poro they become swarming and growing like the seed that is planted in the ground, looks like it's decaying under the pressure of slavery, under the pressure of, of oppression. It looks like it's falling apart. And as it looks like it's falling apart, as we read later on in the Torah, you see, we cry out to Hashem, God of our ancestors, because Abraham had more than his only relationship with Hashem to survive with. If you looked at him as a natural character, he had a militia, he had a spiritual movement, he had the geopolitical ability to survive in the natural world under the natural order of things. He also had a spiritual ability. The spiritual worlds that operate according to good and bad would have aligned with him and said, okay, you're doing well. We support you, we, you know. And of course, the relationship with Hashem. When Israel got into Egypt, they were physically at a point where you cannot come out anymore. They'd lost the natural ability to ever exist again. Maybe over time, there would have been the emancipation of slaves in Egypt that had become free Egyptians, but never would have become an independent nation. Yes, they had some culture. Identity, we read about how they didn't change their names and their clothing. Okay, so there'd have been a sub-sect, a sub-ethnic group within Egyptian society. But that was it. They would never have come out as a separate entity and eventually would have been dissolved into the whole thing. Spiritually, that also, they're on the Memtesh Tuma, the 49th level of spiritual impurity that some Kabbalistic sources talk about. But if you just read your it, chaz, called Ezekiel chapter 20, you see there explicitly. The Gemara says, the Talmud says that that, even a week later after they come out of Egypt and it comes to the splitting of the sea, the, the God says to the angels, go on, split, save the good people, you know, drown the ones trying to kill them. And their response is, what's the difference between these and these? These, the Egyptians, are idol worshippers, are, are power freaks, or whatever immorality, the halalu of the and so is Israel. They've assimilated all the values of the society around them. They're just as bad as them. Now, by the way, <laughs> and then Hashem himself comes to split to see. Very strange just to understand as a side point, what it means that angels argue with God. So It's a side point, but we'll maybe touch upon it in greater depth at another point. An angel in, in Torah and in Torah thought is not a being like a Renaissance painting, a little baby flat with, with, you know flapping around with wings. It's a conduit, it's part of the law structure that like today you'd use the analogy of program or algorithm that is driving the way that things work in the world. It's conscious, it's flowing with, with divine energy and divine will, so it's got a certain sense of its own self-awareness, but it's like an algorithm. It can only do that which is programmed to do. And Hashem is deliberately setting up saying, okay, can the spiritual worlds and the algorithms that, that search for moral good and bad and reward good and, and punished bad. can they pick up? Could, do they give the right to exist to, Israel, to the Jewish people? No. So naturally we have no chance of surviving. Even according to the algorithms that are driving existence, we don't. And that's what Hashem wants us to pick up. They can't, they can't pick it, they can't do it. So what's the only hope when you physically and spiritually have no right to exist, is go to that which is above all the physical world and all the spiritual worlds, the creator of the universe himself. So we kicked in. There was an ancestral gene. That gene that Avraham took out of. That gene, the first three generations had generated. Now, when everything else has decayed in the ground and fallen apart, it kicks into action, and something awakens. We cry and say, Hashem, Hashem, we're trapped in the natural world. We can't exist here. We're trapped by the, all the sort the of spiritual rules. We can't exist here. We want you. Our existence is calling out to you. We want to be with you. We want to be your people. We want to be connected to you. And we will exist only on the basis of our relationship with you. Egypt stripped everything away except that. And what comes out of Egypt, says the Maharal, is not like every other nation walking planet Earth, plus we got a Torah. What comes out of Egypt is an entity that cannot comfortably sit in the world anymore. An entity that doesn't really fit so easily with the world as the world is. Something of the world, almost the natural parts of the world, and even some of its supernatural parts, naturally repel. Something whose only existence can be its relationship with the creator of everything. And that thing is called Yisra. That's what we asked for in Egypt. And what How does Hashem respond? The ten plagues. And those 10 are keneged, say the rabbis, they're keneged, they, they are the parallel of another 10. They're amaris, the 10 sayings through which the world was created. Now there are different midrashim that line up what the 10 sayings are, but generally speaking, we see nine times in creation, Hashem using the verb, the yoyim God, God said, God said, God said. And of course the word boratius, the beginning itself. And the Maharal again says this, that this, the 10 is opposite the ten. In the Svarsamus and in uh, Revitical Kovas, so both in the Hasidic world and in the world of the Vilna Gan and his students, there's a beautiful teaching that in fact the ten plagues are like the inverse, de-creation, rolling from the last one backwards. As if what's happened is that all of creation was set up with a bunch of laws and rules. In Egypt it had all become contaminated, everything had become misused and abused, and crushed by all of that came a new order. And Hashem says, okay, you call out to me, you call out to be free from all the natural limits and all the power structures and all the way the world is. You want something different? I will tear away layer after layer after layer of the 10 structures of the orders of creation, the 10 sayings of creation, until at the last moment you'll be free from all of them. And then you can jump to me and then we can start the world again. We'll start a new chapter in human history all over again and that's why they say for example um, the plagues work in inverse order now i haven't seen inside anybody work out how all 10 work i have a theory i'll share maybe a theory with you you like it or don't like it one or two of them they do give us but certainly you can see the general principle there's plant life created in creation and animal life then human life and the plagues hit all of them but let's just think about it. the last thing in creation is hashem says to the human be fruitful and multiply swarm the world with life. And the very first plague undoes that. How? Because it takes water source of life, turns it to blood that looks like death and is saying, no more, we're undoing this human, just spreading life. The second last thing in creation is that Selah Melakim, creating the image of God, the places, the morale and the fear of the animals for the human, the respect the animal has for the human. And in the plague of frogs, that's gone. There's no fear, they're inside you all over the place. That natural barrier is gone. You're just now like anything else. The third last thing that happens in creation is the very beginning of the creation of man. We discover in the next chapter of the Torah was when Hashem took off from of in Adama dust of the ground and turned it into man. And the third plague, Moshe, Moses is told to take dust of the earth, throw it up, and it attacks man. It becomes the lice, the kinin that attack man. The fourth last thing in creation is the division of animals that the name into their different species, which has advantages. They stay away from one another, right? The, the cattle can be, you know, not the, the predators are not living amongst them. And the fourth plague is orov It all mixes together and all the animals, which has the consequence, the predators start killing the, the cattle. The fifth last thing in creation is the creation of animal life, first in the water and the air and then eventually dry land. And the fifth plague is Deva, is the death of all the important animal life to us. The sixth last thing in creation is the revelation of the sun. The like Gemara says it was actually created already on the first day, but it was only revealed on earth. And with it came things like the, the the healing energy of the sun. And instead Moshe throws up stuff and it comes blistering the sun, it gets towards the sun. It comes blistering down and attacks us. The shafin, the, the boils of the, right? Before that, you had creation of plant life. Then comes the plague of araba, of locusts, which destroys all plant life. Sorry, um, borod, sorry, hail stem, which destroys all, all plant life. I apologize, sorry, getting mixed up. Right, the hail comes down, destroys all, all that plant life. Before that, you had a two-step process that occurs over two different days of creation. God first of all removes the higher and lower waters and then clears the waters. It's not finished, which don't say keto. Then he clears away all the waters and reveals dry land. And creates a habitat for man. And in the plague of this locust, right, it destroys the habitat of man. And in that very description of creation, it's about the land became visible. And in the plague of locusts, it says, he covers, it's no longer visible. So it's literally showing that we're ripping away this idea the world's gonna be a stable habitat for the man. And then the second thing that happens in creation, the ninth last thing, the second thing is, ye are, let there be light. And the second last plague is darkness. And that plague would have had particular meaning to Egypt because of their worship of the god Ra, the sun god. And that's suddenly having his power destroyed. And finally, finally, the last thing left is the word beratius the beginning creative point. And then every single racious, every beginning creative point in every family in Egypt is gone. And at that moment of midnight, everything is ripped away. All the laws... All the power structures don't have to be there. We could build a world not limited by what we think is its natural limits. This world has unlimited potential. And it's into that, that world where you touch the vision of the creator, the ability to recreate the world and recreate the world. That, into a different model of the world, that's where we're born and created. Let's take this a little bit deeper before we can really come back and answer the questions. You see... When Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moshe speaks to Paro, he always faithfully says over everything Hashem says, with one exception. It's subtle. Near the beginning of the 11th chapter, -hmm. around the midpoint of the night, I'm coming into Egypt, I'm going to free you. Right? If you don't let them out now, then the firstborns will all be gone. The Gemara says, actually, we go free, at the midpoint of the night. Why does Moshe say around the midpoint of the night when Hashem says the midpoint of the night? And so the Gemara says, and different answers given, but the Gemara says that he was afraid, or this is how it sounds like anyway, that the astrologers and astronomers of Pharaoh would get it wrong, right? At midpoint, it's going to all happen. And they'd say Moshe Badawi, Moshe is not true. Very strange for many reasons. One is, they've had this track record of Moshe getting everything right. Let's suppose he got this one right too, and they slightly miscalculated the time. They're going to say he's a fake? I mean, they're just watching the whole thing collapse all around them, and it doesn't make sense. But more than that, how did they even measure time in those days? As sundials, it wasn't easy to measure at night. So who says they could even have accurately measured midnight? So if Yitzhakar is a cover, right? Again, student of the student of the Vilna in, in in Kabbalah, and in halacha, but he, he says the following. He says that you see there is no such moment as the midpoint of the night. There is no moment called the chatzialayla, the midpoint. Why? Imagine time like a line, right? You draw the midpoint, means you can cut everything in two. Everything is either before the midpoint or after it. If you put it put it together again, you can see that, that the midpoint is that which divides everything to before and after. It's not a bit of time. It's not a chunk of time. If it was a second, it wouldn't be a second. Half of that second is before the midpoint and half of it's after. There is no moment you can come out in called midnight because there's no moment at midnight. Midnight is just a way of dividing all the rest of time in your mind into two. You can't come out in midnight. And that, he says, is exactly the point. And that's why they couldn't understand it. They, they say, they couldn't be You're not saying anything about You're you talking nonsense. You're coming out inside a moment that doesn't exist. What are you? And that's exactly, so he says around midnight, around about that midpoint, we're coming out, and that's exactly the point. You're coming out in a moment that does not exist in space and time because that's exactly where you're going to be born, outside the natural world. The soul of who you are now will be that which is not attached to any moment in time. That which never belongs to any moment in time so that you will be born as a people who never just accept the way the world is at that moment in time if you want to understand the real next level of this, it's that in two weeks, three weeks' time's reading of the Torah, as they stand at Mount Sinai, Hashem says to the Jewish people, you saw that I took you out of Egypt. For I flew you on wings of eagles and brought you to me. We never read in the story of coming out of Egypt anything out of wings of eagles. Excess. So the Targum, that me the old translation of the Torah says, you saw that I took you out of Egypt and I flew you on wings of eagles and I brought you, to me means I brought you to my holy temple in Jerusalem where you sat there eating the carbon pestle, eating the pestle offering with the mats and the moron. And you think, what are you talking about? There wasn't a temple in Jerusalem. It hadn't been built yet. Hundreds of years in the future. You see what he's saying? I lifted you outside of the natural world. It's like you hit that moment at midnight, you flew out the world. In that moment that wasn't in time, that moment you were created, that moment of pure freedom, pure closeness to, to Hashem, limitless moment where there are no laws holding you back. You suddenly, we journeyed into the future like we traveled, if you like, in a time machine. We sat in the future in a vivid image of the future and we were there at the end of history with God in the future temple that will be. Boom, then we're back inside Egypt. Oh, it's 12 midnight, and one second left. And the... We were created in the future. So that we will never belong to any moment of history. So that we will always be citizens of the future, temporary residents of the present. And that is what Hashem wanted to do. You want to create real freedom? Don't live in the world the way it is now, subject to its power structures and limitations. Live as people who belong to a world shining with godliness, with the peace, with the oneness, with the depth of humanity fully in its relationship with God and never be satisfied with the world that is anything less than that. Then you're never subject just to the way the world, its natural structures work now because there could always be built something far greater into the future. And that's who you are. And born like that, we manifest what Avramita Kinyak, the ancestral gene that cried out to Hashem that says, God, we don't want to be part of this. We want to be part of you. Now that's who we are. Now when we're planted back in the world, it's never a fully comfortable thing. It's to the extent to which we're bringing the world to where it needs to go to and shining the light in the world, all the goodness of humanity would we'll always like that. To the extent to which we're failing and we just want to be part of the world the way it is now, something in the world will come and attack you and eject you. It can be persecution, it can be intense persecution, it can be demonization, it can be being accused of the most horrific things, blood libels, and then throw the most, now in our time, you take the worst possible words, genocide and, and uh, apartheid, and just throw them onto whatever the collective body of the Jewish people is. One group wants to completely come and slaughter you. If you defend yourself, the other groups will say, oh, we've never seen anything like this. So many civilians died. I oh, well, there. Was more civilians died when Britain and America were fighting ISIS. <laughs> well, whatever. But you understood then the civilian casual. Yeah, but you can't, right? It's, like, it's almost like, you can't be like that. You're not part of the natural order. And if you're failing in your mission to bring the world to perfection, something inside us is going to, in the dark parts of humanity is going to hate you. Your job is to bring light to the world. You fail to bring enough light to the world. There's a lot of darkness. Darkness hates light. It will come to kill you. It will come to, de- it will twist everything around and accuse you of being darkness, make you into the, 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 the aggressors and whatever. That's what it will always do. Because we don't belong to the world the way it is now. The world, there'll always be a part of the world that wants to throw us out. And, our, and, and it's a message to us. Are you doing your job? If we're doing our job right, if we're bringing, if we're really doing what we were created to be, conduits for God's light flowing into the world, then this wouldn't happen. There'd be enough light. All There's so much good in humanity that everyone wants us. To. We're taking, we're living something the future can be and everyone will want to be that. And when we're failing that, the world wants to kick us out. And that's what Hashem says, to wrong. You don't understand You will inherit it. Individually, people may get lost, but what you are and what you're about to become in the Egypt process stripped away any ability to exist in the world as it is now. Committed, your existence will be the relationship with God. Your existence will be ambassadors of God. Your existence will be citizens of the future, bringing the world there if you do your mission correctly. Then you're guaranteed you will get there. Individually, people may fail, but the collective won't. And that's created in Egypt. The reason that Sadr is called Bo is because Bo is what you say when you're standing on the other side. Come. And it's like Hashem is saying to Moshe, I'm calling you from the future. Not Lech. not I'm standing with you now, go forward to Pharaoh and get free. Bo, I'm calling you from the future. Come, come. The reason the Jewish people are sitting eating matzah which is food itself that is not, doesn't even really belong to time. (laughs) The essence of matzo is it doesn't get to expand into time, right, it's like the food, when your soul is traveling above time, your body has to be fed by bread that is not allowed to sour into space and time. They didn't know why they're eating it in that night. It was the call of the future, the call of the timeless jump they're gonna have to undergo now, that will become the food they'll have to have tomorrow morning. But in essence, this is the power of everything that's happening in Parashas bow. Okay, there's a lot more to say, but hopefully we've we've, uh, given, just conscious of the time, we've given ourselves a little bit of a vision of the power of that which is happening in this story. And this is the message we've got to give our children. Not just, we were in trouble, Hashem saved us, we're grateful, that's true. But we were created by the voice of the future. We were created by saying, we're not able to tolerate the world the way it is now. We want to be with you, Hashem. We want to be your ambassadors to bring it to perfection. And that's a challenge for us. We can't ask the world to treat us like everybody else. We've asked to be treated at a different standard. We've asked to be, and we have a mission. And if we fail that mission, we let the world down. We let the creator of the universe down. As people tell us we're being bad, ignore it, they're talking rubbish. But a little bit of what they say is true. We are letting the world down. We are failing what we're meant to be. And if we're succeeding what we're meant to be, then the world will get to where it needs to get to. Bo El Paro, hear the call of the future, touch the timelessness, live as the ambassadors for God. That's what we teach our children. That's what we teach our children. And that's what our parents taught us. And so we sit every single year when it comes to night, and we go back in time to join them on that last moment as they themselves sat there thinking forward into the future about you and me. What questions will they be asking in thousands of years time? How will this message still live then? How will the call of the future always touch all of our children and grandchildren of future generations? And the answer is because of the jump that you made hearing the call of God, hearing the call of the future then. That's what we were then. Please God, that's what we should experience again very soon. Thank you very much.